The Arkansas Public Policy Panel is a statewide organization dedicated to achieving social and economic justice by organizing citizens groups around the state, educating and supporting them to be more effective and powerful, and linking them with one another in coalitions and networks. The panel seeks to bring balance to the public policy process in Arkansas. The Folding Chair is a podcast that is accessible and relatable to everyone to engage people around the topic of racial equity in Arkansas, powered by the Arkansas Public Policy Panel. And now, welcome to The Folding Chair, hosted by Osiris Bali. It's me, Osiris Bali, Racial Equity Coordinator for the Arkansas Public Policy Panel. Welcome to the Folding Chair Podcast. You know, it all comes from the phrase, man, a quote by Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman to ever run for president. If they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. At the table with us tonight, man, we're doing our first guest we got, man. I'm honored to have one of our uh, one of our great leaders in our community in our state of Arkansas, man. We got Fernanda Brassfield, attorney and executive director for our Arkansas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. What's going on? Hey, y'all. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. Um, This is my first ever podcast, so we're making history tonight. We're just going to kind of dive into things, you know what I'm saying, get to know you a little bit better. Tell me something that makes you smile. What makes me smile? I would have to say um, really, really simple things make me smile. Um, one of the um, things that's at the top of the list is like the sun on my face. That makes me smile. So big and so bright. If I got the sun shining directly on me, as it often does, um, then that makes me smile. All right. You like to get outside a little bit, soak up some of that good that sunlight. You know what I'm saying? So that's what's up. Tell me, tell me this right here. Uh what was your like childhood dream job or career that you saw growing up that's what you really wanted to do? You know, I've um, always wanted to be a lawyer. I think my mama, um, she programmed me with um, always having Perry Mason on at home. But um, I've always seen myself as an advocate, as someone that was going to um, definitely demand every right that I should be afforded, but was also going to advocate for other people as well. Um, I took some detours and um, have done some other things. Modeling is something that I never wanted to do. It's just something that came about kind of happenstance. Um, but I've always wanted to be an attorney. I didn't I didn't know that, you know what I'm saying, when you are doing your modeling career and everything, like that wasn't something that you always wanted to do. It just kind of just happened. So, but that's dope. You went back to your true passion and became an attorney, man. And everybody that I talk to, man, that's had the pleasure to work with you, they always have just like glowing reviews about you. A lot of times, you know, people get online and they say, hey, uh, does anybody have an attorney that they can recommend or a lawyer that I can work with? And your name get tagged like pretty quick. So we know you're great at what you do for sure. So, well, thank you. You know, I try to take care of my people. And, um, you know, if it's not something that I don't believe in, and I don't think that I can um, work vigorously um, on a person or a person's behalf or on the behalf of, um, of an issue, then I just don't want to be involved in it. My next question for you is, what has been one of the biggest resources in your journey leading up to your career now? I 
I'd say um, one of my biggest resources has been, I know this is going to sound so cliche, but it's been books, Um, books and information, um, the ability to research and to ask questions. That's been my biggest resource because I don't come from a family of lawyers. A lot of the things that I've done or um, am trying to do um, it's a it's it's a process of figuring it out, and so that's been one of my biggest resources is having um, information available, having people that will lend their brains to me um, and give advice or direction. Um, that's really been the biggest resource on my journey to where I am in my career now. Already, already, I like that. I like that. Definitely a fan of my people's that's got the book clubs, book worms, man. That's something I always promote literacy and just the importance of just researching and, and, and doing your own research for yourself, man. So taking the time out to find out that information. That's dope. So tell me this right here. Uh, I'm a big fan of music. You know what I'm saying? I'm an artist. Give me a song that people may may or may not think is something that like when you hear it immediately, like it's just gonna send you to the dance floor, it's gonna push you the soul train line, like something that when it come on, he's like, oh, that's my, that's my, that's my song right there. What, what would that be? You know, I love music. So there, um, there are so many songs. Um, mm-hmm. And there's so many songs that I could point to. Um, one of them is um, I Love Blues, um, Disco Lady by... <laughs> Disco Lady by Johnny Taylor. Whenever I hear that, um, shake it up, shake it down. When I hear that, I've got to go to the dance floor. Um, you know, um, when I'm in the airport, I like to hear Feds watching, you know, by uh, 2 Chainz. <laughs> okay. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> yeah. I love hearing that. Um, let's see. Um, my favorite songs are probably, um, and this is not necessarily dance floor songs, but uh, would be My Life by Mary J. Blige. And then um, mm-hmm. Mystical mm. had a song, um, I'm Just a Ghetto Child Trying to Make It. Mama. Yeah. This ghetto got me crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what's up. You got a you got a real diverse list of songs right there, man. You got to give a shout out to homie Johnny Taylor, one of our hometown heroes. You know, I don't know nobody that don't like no Johnny Taylor out here in Arkansas. You know, so. if you don't know, if you don't like Johnny Taylor, I'm I'm sorry to you. But uh, where are you from? Crawfordsville, right? Crawfordsville is that where he's from? I believe that's where he's from, Crawfordsville. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that, that's what's up. Yeah, mystical. You know, Fez watching two chains, dope. My life. You know, that's a real air sample. You know, I, I fool with. Uh, Everybody loves the sunshine. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, we, I had to tell you a story about that song right there, man. But I ain't yeah. gonna bore you with it right now. Let me ask you this right here. Give me a word that you feel like you know would describe you, Ferranda. What word would um, describe for Rhonda? Um, relentless. Relenting on. Um, you know, um, I just try to keep going. Mm. And things, um, you know, life is not a crystal stair, but I just try to keep going. Um, positivity as well, you know, positive. I try to um, always look at the best case scenario, you know, keeping reality in mind, but that's the only way that I really keep going is to, you know, to be positive. Already. Got to have that perseverance relentless already. Tell me, like, what's one of your favorite vacation spots or just a getaway location like to go? 
Um, so I've got um two different, um, two probably two different a vacation spot. Um, I just love to be at the beach. And um, as long as I can be at the beach and see the water and um have um my own little piece of sand, um, I don't like busy beaches, but um I love to be at the beach. Went to um Hilton Head, South Carolina last year, loved mm-hmm. it. We went to act um to Ghana the previous year um one of my good friends elizabeth is there and um, um mm-hmm. my friend latrice and i went over and visited elizabeth bentley um shout out to her she's doing big things over in ghana and um mm-hmm. latrice great but we went there and we were on the beach um an amazing time with um crystal c mercer i'm dropping names I know oh, <laughs> Uh, we had a great time on the beach. So I love to be on the beach, but um, as far as a getaway location, um, my garage is typically my getaway. Um, oh, because, it is. Before COVID-19, I was everywhere all the time. When I would get to my garage, that's when my body would just say, okay, I get a moment to myself. I would just sit in the garage for a while. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I remember when Crystal was in Ghana. You know what I'm saying? She does a lot of great things, too, as well as Latrice. I know y'all had a good time. I, I got, I'm hearing these names and, you know, the beach and kicking it after. I know y'all had a great time. I can see that. We had an amazing time. That's what's up. What you be doing in your garage? See, that's I'm going to ask you that. Like, you know what I'm saying? You're talking about, is it just like a space that you like to be in? Or you just, you got like a lot of hobbies and stuff that you... Well, um, no, it's not even that complex. Um, Osiris, I just um, pull into the garage, I let it down, and I sit there in the dark. Um, I probably wow, okay. I don't think, I try not to think of anything. It's just like a download, and I need to let my brain stop working just a little bit so I can get out this car. Already, okay. I got two more questions for you. Uh, give me, I guess, you know what I'm saying, you're like a, a very dope person, man. And, you know, what, what's, tell me one of your superpowers, because I know you got a few. Um, I'd say um, one is um, positivity. Um, trying to um, look at the bright side of situations so that I can see what we need to be moving towards. Um, and then I, so that I can keep going, you know, especially doing social justice work. Um, things are always so grim and always um, such a crazy Cummins prison, 1,200 COVID positive people. You know, that mm-hmm. thing is commonplace in trying to get um, justice for the people. And so Staying positive it has, has, is a superpower and it's saving my life. It has saved my life on, on many occasions. The ability to um, to have varied vantage points on situations. You know, I have been privy to be um, in lots of different rooms, um, to see lots, lots of different um, what walks and ways of life and to, um, to view social justice issues and racial justice issues um, mm-hmm. from a varied glance has been really helpful to try to um, get people together and build coalition with people that um, previously might not have seen their, their similarities or the ways that, that we could all work together. Oh, dope. And so my last question is, I'm, I'm pretty sure you get asked this question all the time, but for my people who, like, you know what I'm saying, may haven't just met you yet or, you know, haven't had the opportunity and the pleasure to work with you. As uh, Tell me about the Arkansas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. 
The Arkansas coalition to abolish the death penalty um, is just a really um, amazing and unique group of folks. Um, shout out to my board. We had a board meeting earlier today, um, really got me energized and, and ready to, to continue doing this work. The coalition is the only organization in the state of Arkansas that's designed solely designed to abolish the death penalty here in our state of Arkansas and then to um, abolish the death penalty throughout our country and then, um, you know, our whole world. We don't believe that any state, any government should be um, killing its citizens. Um, We believe that murder is wrong and, you know, murdering somebody else to prove that murder is wrong is just crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, We we know that it costs more money to... um, to execute someone or before that to attempt to execute someone, you know, going through that whole process and um, super due process and um, appeals and then keeping people in um, mandatory solitary confinement when, you know, what's the difference between the murderer that you put on death row and the murderer that you got in general population. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a group of folks that are, um, our soldiers, you know, fighting a fight that is not popular, um, that um, in, in a lot of instances is not popular, that people um, think of lastly, you know, that's up against so many different obstacles. But um, it's an organization that w- believes and knows that there is a racial disparity in this practice of killing people. Um, African-Americans, Black people are going to be killed Um, much more frequently because racism. And so we try to combine all of those um, reasons and facts and um, in ways that people can digest them or, you know, whatever resonates with you and and hopes of getting more supporters and more people to say that, you know, we've got to abolish death penalty in the state of Arkansas. We cannot continue to do this. We cannot continue to treat black and brown people um, so much more harshly that we're going to take their life when um, their white counterparts are allowed to, um, to, to spend their lives out in, in the general population of the prison or to, you know, um, serve their time and, and be, be free to go home. So that's who the Arkansas coalition to abolish the death penalty is. It's um, people that are working to, um, stop this heinous act in our state. You know, I'm listening to you talk, man, and it, and it brings me back to um, <clears throat> when we worked with you last year doing the Know Your Rights uh, tour, and, uh, you know, with me and Don Jeffrey and our, all the different groups that we partnered with to make that successful last summer in uh, Arkansas. Um, you talk about the racial disparities in the Arkansas criminal justice system. And I remember that, like, you know, you brought up you and Malik Safir brought up some really good points about that report. Um, can you just tell us like a little bit about the report? Like what are some of the things that it found in Arkansas, if you don't mind? What we found in Arkansas is that at every single level of the criminal justice system, African-American people are treated much more, much more harshly than their white counterparts. You know, it starts with arresting, it's charging, it's sentencing, and um, it's it could be death. It could be the ultimate sentence. Um, what we found in our report is that African-Americans, Black people, are over two times more likely to receive the death penalty for a capital crime. You've got two people, a Black person and a white person. They both commit a capital murder. Mm-hmm. The Black person has over 
two times more of a chance to get the death penalty over their white counterpart who is more likely to get the more lenient sentence of life without parole. So, you know, being black can mean and often does mean life or death here in our state. That's how serious the racial disparity is in our Arkansas criminal justice system. Yeah, and I, and I think a lot of, like, you know, I'm glad that, that we have people like you that can, you know what I'm saying, share those stats with us. Because I don't think a lot of times, you know, when we go places and uh, want people like, like me who live in central Arkansas, you know, a lot of people don't know that, like, what percentage of the population in Arkansas do black people make up versus that incarceration rate. And just seeing the big difference in like our numbers in prisons versus white people in prison compared to the population in the state, and it's you know we're not we we don't we're not the only people that commit crimes. But if you look at the you know saying the disparities, man, you know it's like why are we always constantly being incarcerated? And why do we have like high recidivism rates? And you know I don't think people understand the, like the racial inequity aspect of what's going on in our criminal justice. So we have to, like, you know what I'm saying, lead that conversation to talk about that more. Right now, I know, like, you know, it being April, it's been, like, three years since the um, governor decided to do the, the eight executions in 10 days, was it? Yes. Okay, and so for people who are, like, you know, unfamiliar with, like, what happened three years ago, uh, can you just talk a little bit about that and, and and explain to people like what like what was all going on when that was happening and why was it happening? Because that made national news like to have eight executions in 10 days, like after I don't know, I forget how many years it was that we even had an execution. Like what was going on at that time? So, um, you know, that was a really um strange, eerie, dark time in our state. You know, we made international news as mm-hmm. this state that has set eight executions to be carried out in the matter of 10 days. This is 2017. It's been three years ago, three years to the date. You know, um, I was telling my board earlier today, it's so ironic that um, three years ago, to this date, we were dealing with four scheduled double executions. The governor has said four dates where he was going to kill two men every single night until he mm. killed eight people. Mm. Um, you know, to the day, now we're dealing with this horrible commons situation where approximately 1,200 people, 1,200 inmates have been diagnosed with COVID-19. But I, I, I will come back to that later. We're talking okay. about 2017 now, um, mm-hmm. April 2017. Um the governor has set this plan in motion to execute eight men um, because our execution drugs were set to schedule at the end of April. And we wanted to hurry up and use them before we couldn't use them and we couldn't kill the people. That was a crazy time. You know, attorneys um, were working all around the clock. Shout out to the federal public defenders, um, our state public defenders, um, Lee Short, um, Jeff Rosenswag, folks that were um, really, really working hard to try to keep these guys alive. Um, Mm -hmm. Ultimately, you know, we started off. Again, I'm going to talk about this racial disparity. We talk, We started off with four black people, black men that were set to be executed versus four white men that were set to be executed. By the time that we had finished these executions, three black men had been executed and one white man had been executed. 
for various reasons. You know, mm-hmm. Liddell Lee was the first person that had been executed in, in Arkansas in over in almost 11 years. He was executed amidst very, very, very strong claims that he was innocent of the crime for which he was executed. Mm-hmm. Um, we have just recently, earlier this year, the city of Jacksonville agreed to go back and test the DNA in that test. Now, in that case, now before Liddell was killed, he was denied the right to have that DNA tested and we executed him. Um, craziness. I mean, just yeah. straight craziness that, that has been going on in our state. And um, I talk about this racial disparity all the time and I wish people were more concerned about it. But that's what we did in 2017. We got um, international, I don't want to say acclaim, we got international notice and attention for the um, horrible plan that the governor and the AG put into place. And then it was carried out in the name of the citizens. So ultimately, we're all culpable for um, what we allow to be done in our names. And we, we killed four men in 20, 2017. We had scheduled to kill eight, but we killed four men in 20, April of 2017. And now we are here um, April of twenty. 20, and um, it appears that we're still having these extreme issues with our criminal justice system. I remember hearing about it, and like you said, it was made international headlines. Of course, I didn't know about all these uh, different men who they were set to be executed in those 10 days. And so I tried to do as much as I could to like read up on them because, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm I'm an activist and an advocate for criminal justice uh, reform and, you know, saying racial equity. I couldn't understand at the time, like, why, if it was a possibility for uh, the Dale Lee to have, like, some DNA evidence that could prove that he was innocent of the crime that they said he committed, why was why was it such a hard time just to get, like, to test the DNA and possibly, you know, exonerate him and, you know, let him out of prison? Like, what, why does why is that situation like that uh, allowed to happen? And then three years later, you know, now, you know, the family is, you know, about to get it, the DNA investigated on three years after he's already passed. Like, why does that, that situation happen so much? So there is no good reason. Mm-hmm. I can't give you because I don't. I don't believe that there's a good reason that we would allow someone to be executed without testing DNA. Then we go back and say, okay, well, now we'll do it. You know, there's not a good reason for that. Um, there are laws that allow for that. There um, are judges and courts, of course, that allow for that. Um, one of the things, um, Tim Howard is on our board, on the board of the Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, and Tim spent um, time on death row. And one of the things that he he's talked to me about is a thing called procedurally barred because you didn't do it right in the beginning or because it wasn't presented in the beginning or before now, at some point before now, then you are barred from ever presenting it. And even though it could be your saving grace, it's what could prove that you're actually innocent. Um, we, we're not going to let you admit it. And so um, that has been the case in a number um, of instances. And it's not just Liddell Lee. Stacey Johnson, um, he was scheduled to be executed in 2017, and he was um, saved from execution then based upon um, an appeal. He also has claims of um, of innocence, and he has recently, um, and I said recently a couple months back, he's been denied um the ability to test the DNA in his case. And so um, we're essentially um, about to repeat the whole thing over again. And um, it just makes no sense. 
it, it don't make no sense at all. Nah, it, it really doesn't, man. But I'm I'm grateful, like I say, to be able to know a lot of individuals like you and, and people that you work with. Because I, I'm like, you know, most of us, we don't get the we don't get this news about how things work in the criminal justice system, and we need people like you actually like study the facts and know everything about these cases. Because up until I like maybe <clears throat> when I heard about the Arkansas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty and hearing about some stuff that the Equal Justice Initiative was doing nationally, that's when I found out a lot of this stuff about you know DNA evidence not being allowed to be brought in courts and you know just the things that you were mentioning. It's like as obstacles for people that were basically fighting for their life. So, you know, I'm grateful to be getting all this information. I think more people in Arkansas and around the nation need to pay attention to this type of stuff. Um, Could you imagine fighting the um, state of Arkansas for your life, like fighting the whole state? So don't kill me. Yeah. Nah, that's crazy. You know what I'm saying? I know, I know that, you know what I'm saying? It's a, a uphill battle because one of my friends, uh, Kenneth Reams, his story about basically how he's been locked up for 25 years and they already have the person who confessed to committing the murder, but he's been waiting on his appeal to like be approved to see if he can get a new trial for, for over 20-some years. And so, man, it's it just stuff that, like that just kind of is mind-boggling and, you know, that's why my heart go out to a lot of the people, the inmates that keep their heads up and stay in good spirits to fight for their lives because it, even we always find about the stuff out later down the line. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's a lot of work and a lot of effort for people like you working behind the scenes and, you know what I'm saying, on the front lines in the situation. And we just don't hear about it, you know what I'm saying, until like it happens to go viral or it happens to finally make the news, you know what I'm saying? So... All right. And so, like, you touched on it uh, a little bit about 1,200 inmates uh, in Cummins that have tested positive for COVID-19. And it's, um, I mean, what I was going to, like, ask about it, like, the statistics on that, because that was the first information that I had seen when you provided those numbers. But at the same time, I'm looking at the, the, uh, the governor's daily briefing. And I'm like, hold on, these numbers don't match. To the numbers he's actually putting out there. And I'm like, hold on, that's a lot of misinformation because these are Arkansans. These are human beings. These are lives. These are positive cases. Why don't his numbers reflect the reality of what's going on in Arkansas? And then tell me, like, what, like, tell me about the stats and, like, what is, like, what does this mean for the guys that, like, can't social distance from each other, that are in close quarters and, um, like they don't have uh, this, that access to healthcare like we, like some of us, like some of us do. Not everybody has access to healthcare outside of prison. But like, what what's the whole deal with that? Like that that misinformation being out there. I I can't tell you, um, Osiris. I cannot tell you. Um, I I tell you what I do. I'm gonna tell you because people want to argue with me about it. But I tell you what I do. I sit down every day. Yeah. I watch the governor's press conference. When he says how many numbers are at coming, I write it down in a little tally. Mm-hmm. I add it to the day before, and that's the number that I put. Now, they haven't been known to say different numbers um, in the press conference. Yesterday, um, mm-hmm. the numbers were different. I don't know how they're qualifying these numbers, but when he says we had one case of 
COVID. And then he says, we had 43 cases of COVID. Then I add one plus 43 and I come up with 46. <laughs> when they add 262, then I add that number, you know? And so it's very clear on my, um, on my page, what I have added um, and why it doesn't add up to what the governor and the and Dr. Smith are saying at this point, I'm not sure. I don't know if they are counting some cases that they say have recovered and now they're no longer in that total. I, I'm not sure how they're doing that. But all I can say is that when they report the amounts for the day, I write them down and I put it on my Facebook page so people can see um, what they have said. None of it is made up by me. Got you, man. Well, I'm like I said, I'm glad that I am able to like see that information out there because as somebody that has like some loved ones that's incarcerated, you know, we have to check on our loved ones that are behind bars. We have to check on everybody behind bars because just because you've made a mistake or maybe some of you didn't make a mistake, maybe the criminal justice system made a mistake, but your life still matters just as much. And so we can't be out here like thinking that, you know what I'm saying, these numbers are one way when in reality it's something totally different and I'm I've been somebody that's been social distancing the whole time because I have to take care of myself you know and and right now just for the the sake of everybody's mental health and physical health we need to be honest and upfront because that's the only way that we're going to get any solution to this pandemic and so we, we gotta you know we gotta nip. go ahead I'm sorry Oh, no problem. Um, with the numbers that they that they have reported each day, the tally on yesterday was 1,278 inmates had been diagnosed with COVID-19. Mm. Um, in their last statistical report that came out um, at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, um, they indicated that they had about 15 hundred people there. And so um, according to those numbers that they have presented, you know, between 67 and 77 percent of the people of the inmates at Cummins have been diagnosed with COVID-19. And that's outrageous. Mm. It's outrageous. It's ridiculous. It makes no sense. It don't mm -hmm. make no sense. It, it, it really doesn't. And so my thing is like, you know what I'm saying? We know, we talked about disparities and uh I think people hearing this conversation between me and you, it would have, this would enlighten a lot of people. And I'm always thinking about solutions. So how can, how, what can we do as advocates, as people in the community, as friends and family, everybody to like change the perception of people that are incarcerated and help them, help people to understand that they, we're talking about humans, not felons. We're talking about human beings. What do you think we can do personally to like, help with the change in that mentality of looking at them as more than just whatever crime you think they, they'll give to you of looking at them like they're human beings. You know, it takes, um, it's going to take a varied and sustained response. One of the things that people do is when um, something outrageous happens and they're upset for a minute um, or two, and then um, it's back to, you know, business as usual and people are back to their rose colored glasses. And so we are at a point, this is a state of emergency that has been, and you have been talking about it for quite some time. I have, you know, the people that are in our coalition and circle um, have been sounding the alarms for some time and we need people to hear us. We need people to have these conversations with their family. 
about why we can no longer accept racial disparities in our criminal justice system, um, how, you know, everybody needs to be treated the same, whether it's me or um, Karen or Becky um, (laughs) or Osiris or um, Bill, you know, I mean, whatever um, correlations you want to make, we've got to um, demand that this changes. We got to have people when um, talking and writing the governor now Mm-hmm. saying, hey, you know, you've got people that are in your prison for um, low-level drug crimes. You've got people, um, they may have more than one year on their sentence, you know, um, but they still need to um, be on house arrest or that we need we need more community-based solutions for people instead of sending them to the penitentiary. And this is the time to get some common sense corrections going Mm-hmm. And to um, to implement it now and to, to have it as a sustained response so that we're not warehousing our citizens in cages. And then when COVID gets loose, you know, everybody has got um, what could be a death sentence in comments. Mm-hmm. You know, those people could die. I mean, we need people to be involved. We need people to stay involved and we need people to care. Because this affects all of us. Yeah, it really does. It really does. I think, that, like, you know, sometimes those issues that we have that are grouped under social justice and racial equity issues and criminal justice, people like to radicalize those individuals who want to work for those issues because it's not the popular stuff. It's, it's not the, it's not the, uh, it's not going to be a race for cure charity or march of dimes and things of that nature that have become like a part of culture is something that's very acceptable to push for those causes. And I think people a lot of times don't understand that like, we haven't abolished slavery, you know what I'm saying? And it's written in, you know, the constitution where, you know what I'm saying? That basically people who are imprisoned individuals or whatever can be treated just like slaves or indentured workers or whatever. And I was wondering like, like, tell us your thoughts on that because we're talking about this modern day movement for like prison reform. It has a lot to do with abolishing slavery and not treating people as slaves in our criminal justice system. Uh, can you just give me your thoughts on that? Because <laughs> slavery. Because slavery. Um, <laughs> most of what um, we're dealing with now is remnants of slavery. Um, racial disparities are remnants of, of, of slavery. Um, our current prison system is um, a remnant of slavery, convict leasing, you know, where you just come and take um, anybody that's loitering. If they're loitering, if they're unemployed, they don't have papers from their employer, then you grab a body and you take them and make them work for free. And um, I'm not trying to oversimplify the, the prison issue, but that's, that's the historical context of what prisons were created to be. And we see that playing out. We got Commons Prison Farm, Um, Even in the wake of this COVID, inmates were reporting that they were still being made to go out on whole squad. For those of you that don't know, whole squad is where they give you a um, garden tool with a hoe and you go Mm -hmm. and you chop weeds and you you work in the fields and you've got a guard that's up on a horse and he's got a rifle. Kind of like life. You've seen Life, yeah. Eddie Murphy, and, um, and Martin Lawrence. Um, that's what we got going on nowadays. Um, and so you can see those very glaring parallels between slavery um, and our modern day criminal justice system. Um, another parallel is that they don't get paid. You know, here Arkansas is one of the only states that pays our inmates absolutely nothing to work mm. from sun up to sundown. So, and a lot of people are. <laughs> 
a lot of people don't know that. Um, you know, and then the um, in the prisons around the state, they do pay inmates. They pay them um, something, um, some penance, like five cents an hour or, um, you know, 30 cents a day or something, you know, crazy cheap. That's almost like not paying them. But um, that's where our um, our current criminal justice system, that's where it originates from. You've got um, people that, um, I mean, historically, even in, in, in the town that we live in, we've had police officers that have been um, in Little Rock that have gotten political acclaim and notoriety on the news um, headlines about um, racial slurs or um, saying mm-hmm. that you don't like this group of people or whatever. And, um, you know, killings that have come. Um, so, um, you know, our criminal justice system, our country even is routed in, is, is rooted in, in racism. And, mm-hmm. um, we can, we can never forget that. We have to always, um, know that that's where it originated and how can it be so far from that if that's what it was intended to be in the, in the beginning. Period. That's just the truth. You know, uh, I feel like a lot of uh, leaders or people who have political aspirations built like this, their platform around being tough on crime. And when mm-hmm. you phrase tough on crime, people always like, they think that the communities are going to be made safer and it's going to change the narrative of how communities looked at. And I don't think people understand it. Like, you know, when we're talking about racial inequities, a lot of times, like we're talking about black people being targeted when they say tough on crime because like even like you talked about little rock they talk about doing investigative traffic stops uh, a lot of times those investigative traffic stops happen in our communities you know they don't they don't take it out there to chanel they take it to 12th street they take it to south end east end southwest but in communities where they don't they don't have investigative traffic stops through the heights and Kavanaugh and the chanel and all these places and so I think people just really got to start, you know, saying paying attention when they hear these uh, different people who get themselves elected on being tough on crime people. We have to talk about the issue of why is mass incarceration an issue of racial equity, and specifically Arkansas. Like, what what are the stats on mass incarceration in Arkansas compared to the rest of like the nation? Like, are we one of the most? Uh, are we pretty much at the like top of the list in the nation as far as like? Uh, mass incarceration, like I, you, they mentioned a lot of places like Louisiana, Alabama. Uh, is Arkansas like in the middle or at the, at the, when it comes to those numbers? So in the past, Arkansas has had um, one of the fastest rates, growing rates of mass incarceration in the country. Um, mm-hmm. And decarcerate, um, we have said um, Arkansas, um, you know, it, it has one of the highest growing rates in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, some of that has changed based upon um, legislation. Um, you know, our prisons just couldn't bear it. Um, and we were on track to spend um so much money um, that the state didn't have to um, incarcerate individuals. And so um, some of that has changed. Um, It was motivated. It was a fiscal motivation to do that. But, um, you know, whatever is clever. Um, But so a lot of that has changed. But um, we there is a a glaring racial disparity in Arkansas prison. We um, are incarcerating our citizens at at alarming rates. And um, a lot of these things. And then, you know, historically, 
Osiris, you know that um, there um, there were crack cocaine disparities. Mm. You know, um, there has been a um, much different um, approach to um, handling these um, opioid, um, the opioid epidemic. Um, mm. There's been a, a very different response than how the crack epidemic was handled and is still handled, um, and you know how those folks are treated. Um, one. Um, group of people are treated like criminals, the folks that are doing the crack and selling the crack. And then, you know, the opioids, the doctors and um, the patients are um, are treated much. We see the need um, that has always been for a therapeutic um, and mm-hmm. medical approach to that rather than criminalizing um, addiction. Mm-hmm. No, most definitely, because I, I think one of the biggest myths that's been uh passed on for like decades and decades in this country is this idea that incarceration somehow uh, is related to rehabilitation. And we know that's not true because, you know, we know people, uh, sometimes the demons that they may have and the addictions, incarcerating them for whatever amount of years doesn't automatically just change the individual, doesn't fix that sickness. Uh, I'm just going to say this right here. Like, So what ways can we address uh, like a more inclusive future for men and women who are like formerly incarcerated, just in general? I think that we could first have a more community-based approach to corrections, mm-hmm. um, taking people away from their families and sending them down to Cummins um, to sleep, you know, bunk to bunk with um, whoever, you know, is not the best way to deal with, that's not corrections, that's punitive, that's punishment, you know, but corrections is saying, okay, there has been a wrong to the community and um, how do we restore this person? How do we restore the community? That's corrections. That's how, um, in my mind, you know, um, I see a more restorative approach that we should be taking um, with our criminal justice system. So that's the first thing to just stop doing it, how we're doing it, period, and have a more um, restorative approach. Now, I understand um, when you've got these violent crimes, um, you know, we are going to have to have a place sometimes to put people. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not disillusioned at all about that. But um, I think about some of these low-level nonviolent crimes, um, taking people away from their families is not the answer. Um, so, so we talk about having a more inclusive future for men and women that are formerly incarcerated. The state should take more of a um, responsibility and reentry. If we're going to say um, it, it's going to take us $30,000 to keep you in the penitentiary at this bunk with all these other people, then why, when we let people go, will we just say, okay, um, now my hands is off. You're going to be on parole and we want you to pay us. Mm-hmm. You know, go, go, go on, handle it. You know, get your job, do whatever you got to do, find somewhere to live with your, um, your status as a felon. And, um, you know, that's just crazy you know we're, we're sending people up to come right back um economy's bad we know especially for um african americans the unemployment rates are much different than the ones that are um 
presented as the um, average daily unemployment or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got to have a um, more thoughtful approach. If you're going to be letting people go, freeing them from prison, that parole process should look much different rather than, um, you know, we're just going to hold you, we're breathing down your neck, hold you accountable for whatever you do. What are the resources and the assistance that's coming straight from the prison system that has taken somebody out of the community, away from their life, away from their jobs, their families for all this time and just expecting people to um, reintegrate themselves or figure it out. And so I think that we we definitely need to be much more thoughtful about that. And then I think communities need to be thoughtful about how do we, we embrace these people, families, friends, you know, how are we embracing these people so that they can, we can set them up for success instead of, you know, us helping you to do something that's going to get you back in the penitentiary. So mm-hmm. um, there are lots of layers to the issue. But I definitely think that um, as far as the corrections portion, our Department of Corrections, our Community Corrections needs to be much more awful in how that organization facilitates and supports people so that they can be successful after release. I mean, you had already spoke on like how uh, inmates in Arkansas don't get paid to work in prison. And so times. You know, when our loved ones and our friends and our family, you know, end up in prison, that puts a financial uh, burden on us because if they can't <laughs> if they can't work and make the money themselves, then they obviously they got to reach out to people, to, you know, send them money. And then at the same time, you know, when they are released, like you said, you know, that we just throw them out here and expect them to just be like, we know you didn't have it figured out when you got it locked up, but uh, you got another chance to figure it out now. And so they get released, and now. You know, we uh we have to take them in our homes and, you know, say help them out. And then we become, we start to get our rights violated. Because now you want to come and search our home whenever you feel like it. You want to be all up on the property because, you know, they, we living with people that, you know what I'm saying, have lost their rights. And so I don't think people a lot of times understand the stress that family members go through while people are incarcerated and, you know, we trying to get them back on the right track. In the community, the extra stress that comes with law enforcement kind of just violating your rights over and over again. We're talking about health care and accessibility for that. We don't know. We don't really think about a lot of times how much of our like what these chronic diseases, what they call them or whatever, are related to stress. You know, saying that that's a real health concern with us, especially with black people who deal with discrimination and racial profiling. It does something to you physically. You know what I'm saying? When you see a cop in your neighborhood looking like they're looking for somebody, your, your, uh, your attention span get hit on 10, you know what I'm saying? You know, you, anxiety, trauma, all of that stuff. So definitely need to take that into consideration. You touched on a really, really um, good topic about family members and how family members are affected when we incarcerate people. I talked to my cousin the other day and her husband is incarcerated at Cummins and she was telling me that the calls, she used to have to pay um, $8 per call. And I think this is a 30 minute call with her husband. It's $8. And they've dropped the prices since the COVID-19, but they've only dropped them to $4.50. And to um, quote Chris Tucker, I think it is, people is broke these days. <laughs> and who's got $4.50 to um, to spend on a phone call? And, you know, they need to call multiple days. If I was sitting in a box and somebody had sprinkled me with coronavirus, I would want to talk to my loved ones as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So that could be what? 
10, 15, $20 a day when we've got the free world is, you know, people are not working, unprecedented numbers of people that are on unemployment. And, and that's really not being um, accounted or allowed for in the, the prison's response to this COVID-19 um, pandemic that's broken out in our prisons. The families are extremely distraught. They don't know what's going on with their family members. And so there are lots and lots of issues. That's definitely real, man. And we have to, like I said, we have to address the, the racism and excessive, the sexism in our, in our constitution, uh, uh, the economic inequality that we go through as black people, you know, uh, you know, decentering white privilege. <laughs> and, and it's a difficult concept for people to grasp because there, there wasn't a lot of screaming going on for drug reform and drug rehabilitation until... Uh, the opioid crisis, and because it started affecting white people, but we've been talking about like racism, sexism in the Constitution, healthcare for all, and you know a lot of people were just kind of turning the um, is like that was falling on complaints was falling on deaf ears basically, and so uh, I don't know I don't know if you have any thoughts on why it's just such a difficult concept to grasp like you know what I'm saying just because you don't think it affects you doesn't mean that it won't affect you just forever you know what I'm saying. So, uh, I mean, you're asking me, um, I've got to admit that, um, I am possibly jaded. So, um, please, please understand that when I, when you hear my answer, um, too many people just don't care. They don't care until it affects them personally. That's on a lot of different issues. That's black people, that's white people, Hispanics, Asians, my experience has been that people default to indifference and unless it's happening in my backyard or in my house or to somebody that, that I know and love, then it's not my problem. I'm now trying to get a bag. That's my opinion. I'm not making any value judgments. I'm just saying that's how it looks to me um, with the work that I do. I like the truth um, to me. <laughs> getting people to, um, to care. Um, I just need you to Give me some more advice on that, Osiris. Man, um, I think I can, I think we can talk offline about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one, one, one thing I think, like, not just uh, traditional education, but, but definitely education, you know, it's, we got a lot going on in Arkansas and our communities when it comes to public school education and just privatization of education. But not only that, just like, Educating ourselves, us having that knowledge itself. What can we do to help you right now in the, with the Arkansas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty? What are some things that you have going on personally right now that we need to be aware of and spread the word on? And just in general, like, what do you think are some things that are, are coming up that we need to be paying attention to to help our brothers and sisters in the community around here? Well, first thing is um, to help me. Right now, today, I probably would have said something different two months ago, but mm-hmm. right now, you can, you can help me by protecting yourself at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, social distance, you know, um, that's we're trying to stay alive before we even um, get to the prisons, you know, and, or, or being activists. We are trying to stay alive. So 
wearing masks and washing your hands and not having people over your house. Don't barbecue, you know, don't, you know, or meet them at the curb with the plate. I mean, we are still in a state of emergency and people are opening up states and I don't know the science behind it. I, there's nothing um, that I've seen that says um, it's safe to go out just that we want to. And so mm-hmm. that's the first thing that people can do. Um, to um, help me, to help me help you, you know, let's mm-hmm. all just stay alive. Other things is making sure that um, you are, you're being knowledgeable. You're actually identifying a source that you can get good information about so that you can be knowledgeable about what's happening every single day. If it's um, Don's page, um, neighborhood, what's, what's Don's page? Neighborhood. Neighborhood. <laughs> Neighborhood activists, yes. If it's Don's page, neighborhood activists. If it's um, Ruby Welch's comments page, whether mm-hmm. it's the decarcerate page, whether it's the um, Citizens First Congress page or public policy, get you um, align yourself with some group or somebody that's going to. Um, if you don't have time to, to look at all the press conferences yourself, Anika Whitfield, the Poor People's Campaign, the Arkansas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, of course, ACLU Arkansas. Align yourself with, with some group, organization, or person that will help you get good information. Mm-hmm. Not their biased opinions, but good information. Um, that's the first thing, being knowledgeable. Um, keeping yourself safe and then being knowledgeable. The third thing is to um, take action. After you've talked about share, that's the action sometimes. You know, sharing and make sure once you have vetted your information, sharing it to um, the next person so that we can all be on the same page about what's going on. And then we need to act and move forward. When there's a call to action and we say, hey, we need you to do this. We need you to call the governor's office. We need you to write a letter, send an email. We need you um, at some point when we can come out of our houses in the state. If we're going down here marching, we need you with us. We need to be on the same page um, about many things, um, not just criminal justice reform, but we've got to organize. Um, talk to your pastor about these issues, you know, to see if your congregation can get involved. Um, and you need to know how your pastor feels about social justice issues um, for sure, because, I mean, if you're following the leadership of somebody that just really doesn't care um, what happens to the people after they leave the sanctuary and pay their tithes, then, you know, you probably need to be moving around anyway. we got space for you at Lonely Baptist Church where the white details and it's my pastor. Um, but um, th- those are things, um, just common sense. I ain't trying to get nobody to, um, you know, be so sojourner truth or hear your tummy right this second. But um, there are very small um, incremental things that we can all do to help push this forward. Um, we'll have a legislative session 2021, 20, you know, mm-hmm. in your legislation. What do you want to see in your neighborhood? What do you what law do you want to see change? What's affecting you and your family and your community that um, we need to have a law changed? participating in the process is what I'm saying. Stop being, you know, sleep and just worried about yourself and who's in your house. I mean, that's good to do. And sometimes we feel like we're doing all we can to do that. And I, I mean, I can't say that you're wrong, but um, we got to have our hands on deck. The bottom line. Got you. For all the listeners, she just broke it down for you, man. Uh, we all got a, a role in this movement. We all got a, a place, uh, but it's so important to like, you know, if, if you ain't got an institution that you following, you know, a school, a church, a group, uh, find one, was, you know what I'm saying, uh, 
Many hands make light work. That's the old African proverb, man. We can't all do it by ourselves. You know what I'm saying? We, we need groups, we need institutions, we need organizations. And you just you just dropped a whole lot of different organizations. Everybody you mentioned got a Facebook page. You know, mm-hmm. so Twitter account. You know, you can go, you know, that's the good thing about this being a podcast. You can rewind that and go back and write all this stuff down. Citizens First Congress, Arkansas Coalition Abolish the Death Penalty, Poor People's Campaign, Decarcerate, Neighborhood Activists. Uh, so many different, ACLU of Arkansas, man, so many de- different great organizations doing great work. Find you a cause. Definitely be engaged on the, the 2021 legislative session. So much happens so quick and fast, but it's, it's affecting all of our lives. Oh, yeah, Arkansas Peace and Justice Memorial Movement, definitely. Yeah, Which, that's it. They will be the next guest, so thank you for your <laughs> shout them out. Call me and obey, you know what I'm saying? Uh, dope, dope. We got a lot of different people out there, man, so yeah, I hope the listeners are inspired. Uh, if there's anything else you want to share as far as like uh, where people can find you and uh, any final thoughts that you have to share? Um, you know, I love y'all. I want everybody to know that, you know, even um, in, in our disagreements, I love my people. Um, yes. And I just want, I want us to do better. I don't want this um, COVID-19 to um, to take away um, as much as they predict that it's going to take away from us. Um, I want everybody to be safe. I just, um, I'm grateful for, um, for you, for the, um, the panel for actually doing this. Um, I'm, listen, fold and share. If they don't give you a seat at the table, which they typically never do, then you bring your own chair and, and you do your own thing. So I just appreciate you guys for doing this, for um, bringing me on and for giving me this opportunity to do my very first podcast. That's great right there. Well, much respect and love to you, man. You know I got your back if you ever need something. If you need something from the Arkansas Public Policy Panel, you know we we are definitely fans of uh, Feronda Brasfield. So I hope everybody enjoyed this uh, episode of the Folding Chair Podcast, powered by the Arkansas Public Policy Panel. You know, if they don't give you a seat at the table, make sure you bring a folding chair. Make sure you follow the work of attorney Feronda Brasfield uh, with Arkansas Coalition abolished the death penalty, and anytime you see her name, just just know it's a it's a righteous cause and a good fight that's going on. So we appreciate you. You out, man. This is our first uh, podcast for you know you know saying during the COVID nineteen pandemic. So just keep on following us, and we'll be on all those platforms: Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts. Man, just look for us online. All right, peace. Thank you. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to the Folding Chair Podcast. Powered by the Arkansas Public Policy Panel. For more information on the Arkansas Public Policy Panel, find us on Facebook, Arkansas Public Policy Panel, and follow us for more updates on the podcast and the work of the Arkansas Public Policy Panel.